And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the Skype line with us today is Dr. Joel Beakey, President and Professor of Systematic Theology and Homiletics at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary. He is pastor of the Heritage Reformed Congregation in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and editor of Banner of Sovereign Grace Truth, editorial director of Reformation Heritage Books, and president of Inheritance Publishers. He's vice president of the Dutch Reformed Translation Society, and he's written and co-authored about 80 books and edited 50 more. Dr. Beakey, you're a busy man, and it's great to have you with us. Great to be with you, Dan. Now, here at Redeemer, we have an evening program called The Covenant Home, and part of our program includes reading shorter excerpts from books that are about the Christian family. A while ago, we worked through your book, Parenting by God's Promises, How to Raise Children in the Covenant of Grace. I think it was published in 2011. And uh, Dr. Beakey, sometimes it seems that parents want, quote, the secret to successful parenting. And can you summarize some of the highlights of your book with our listeners today? Sure. Well, the book basically does uh, four things, Dan. The first thing it does is it looks in several chapters at how we should view our children. It looks at the covenantal foundations. And I take the position that we see our children in the covenant, but though they are privileged beyond uh, heathen children that don't have access to the means of grace that we, we get, that those children still need to be born again and come to personal repentance and faith. So they're kind of like in an external relationship to the covenant. They get the privileges of church benefits and so on and, and, and God-fearing parents. But and, and God tends to work along covenantal lines, but they must be drawn into the gospel through personal regeneration and conversion. So that section of the book talks about how you are to look at your children, therefore how you are to speak to them about the gospel and how you are to evangelize them. Then the second section of the book looks at the whole area of parenting through a paradigm that I'm calling the the, the prophet-priest-king paradigm. And if there is a secret to true parenting, I suppose it lies here, that we need to teach our children as prophets, pray for them as priests, and guide them as kings. So I've got, oh, looks like eight or nine chapters on, on that section. And there I speak under the kingship office of, of how to discipline your children preventatively, correctively, under the priestly domain. I look at how to sympathize with your children and so on and give examples of how to teach them. And the third section of the book deals with practical steps for child-rearing, particularly preteen children. Talks about how to teach them piety in one chapter, another chapter, how to teach them to listen, how to tame their tongues, and so on. And then the last section of the book deals with particular areas of help needed for raising teens. I look at how teenagers can discern God's will, how we can help them see God's will how they should resist negative peer pressure, how they should manage anger, and how we can help them manage anger, of course. And then the last chapter deals with God's covenant faithfulness over the generations, 
teaching us how to grandparent. Those are uh, wonderful categories. And the the last one there uh, struck close to home for us because uh, my wife and I, um, we've just recently had a, a new grandchild, and now we have two grandchildren. Mm. And uh, it's just a wonderful blessing. Um, but going back to how we are to view our children, suppose a new parent, a Christian, you know, it's a Christian home, husband and wife, they've just had an infant uh, born to them and uh, have seen God's blessing on this young child. Can you guide that young family, how they are to think about their child, and yet not presume upon the Lord, but um, appreciate and have confidence in the fact that they now have a covenant child? Yes. Well, we we baptize our, our children on the basis of those faithful covenant promises, believing that God will normally work through the generations. And so we talk to our children like this. Um, Son, you need to be you need to be born again. You need to come to personal repentance and faith like anyone else. But you do have some some great privileges. You're 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 baptized. The triune God is named his name side by side with your name. He's willing to be your God. And you're under the prayers of the church and, and, and your parents, you're under the guidance of Christian parents. You you get to hear the word of God every week. These are wonderful privileges, and God declares his willingness to be your God. But you need to repent and believe the gospel by the grace of the Holy Spirit. But the good news is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all willing to be involved in your salvation. So seek the Lord and don't rest until he's your God, until you have a new heart, until you can walk in the ways of the Lord with, with joy and in responsiveness to, his, to you, the covenant privileges given to you. So that, that's the type of thing mm-hmm. that I try to develop. And I look at different scriptural examples in these first five chapters of the book, uh, talk about how to bring children to Christ, how to evangelize them, and so on. Well, what about that uh, part you mentioned, how to bring children to Christ, assuming they're a covenant child, at least one of the parents is a Christian, hopefully both of them are. Um, any guidelines for just basically... Here's some things that would really help in your struggle and your in your work of preaching the gospel to to your young children. Yes, well, yes, I, I I work off of the story that I think your listeners will resonate with in Mark 10, where parents bring their children, really in the original Greek, their children of all ages, to Jesus, and he embraces them and blesses them. And uh, I try to draw some principles from that, how we're to bring our children to Christ. The very first principle is, of course, we need to be convinced that our children need Jesus and need his salvation. And we are also encouraged to bring them to Christ because, as we've been saying, our children do belong to the Lord uh, covenantally. So uh, even if even in an outward sense, they're, they're set apart from the world and we need to teach them that. And then thirdly, we bring them to Jesus when we surrender them to Jesus Christ so that we surrender them in prayer daily. And fourth, we need to speak to our children and live with them in a Christ-centered way. So in other words, 
if we get more excited about the recent ball game scores of some some sport team than we do about talking to our children about Jesus Christ, they pick up on that and our religion becomes a farce for them. So we've got to live a Christ-centered life in front of them and we've got to speak much about Christ to them. And so the goal is to make a godly impression not only with our walk, but also our talk. And not only with our talk, but also with our walk. Always remembering that our walk talks more than our talk talks. And then we show our children also when we bring them to Jesus, our own reverence and our own joy toward the Lord Jesus Christ and toward the triune God. And when they sense a real peace, a real reality in our relationship with Christ, that also can make a profound impact. But then also, I argue that we need to teach our children the whole counsel of God, both law and gospel. It's not enough, you see, to say, well, the church will teach them or the Christian school will teach them. Reality for a child is at home. And if parents aren't teaching them at home, then church and school become artificial settings. So there needs to be a triangular consistency between home, church, and school, or if you're homeschool, of course, between church and home. And the best way to do that is to begin with daily family worship. And I would say the heartbeat of really long-term bringing children to Christ is to discuss every single day with your children the truths of God. If your child leaves home at age 20, for example, you have 7,300 opportunities to speak to your child about the truths of God on a daily basis. If you walk your way in family worship through the Bible, the Bible discusses every particular subject. It gives you the whole counsel of God. So you will be teaching your children the whole counsel of God almost automatically through family worship. And then I like to suggest also that we bring our children to Jesus when in our home spontaneously throughout the day, we offer our children Christ-centered views of current events, current opinions, whether it's in politics or ethics. We try to teach them how these things relate to the Bible and to the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, I would say we lovingly speak to our children about eternity. We warn them about the dangers of being outside of Christ on the judgment day. And we speak to them about the glories of being in Christ and being married to Christ forever in heaven. And um, I think these are some of the main principles in leading our children to Christ. That's beautiful. In that section, uh, part two, Parenting as Prophets, Priests, and Kings, there's one section called uh, Sympathizing with our children, sympathizing with them. What's that one all about? Well, Jesus is a sympathetic high priest, and we are to pattern our parenting after him and his relationship with his people. And um, our children will sin and need to be forgiven, but we also need then to restore them and be sympathetic to them. They need to feel our love in those situations. And so what I did in this chapter is I used the example of Peter and how he feared that Jesus would not receive him afterward. It seems, at least that's what it seems to be. 
And but Jesus included him. Jesus restored him. Jesus showed him his high priestly sympathy. And so we should look at our children. For example, when we discipline them and they confess their guilt and they weep over their sin. After we have to sometimes administer punishment, we at the same time scoop them up in our arms. Um, speaking now of young children and uh, hold them tight and pray with them and show them sympathy. And just like Jesus said in Hebrews 4.15 that he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. They are tempted in all points like we are as parents, but they sin just as we do. And so we teach our children that we need to do the same thing they do. We need to flee to Christ for forgiveness. And we need to flee to Christ also as our substitute because he has borne the very sins that we fell into. He has borne those very temptations to those sins sinlessly. So we find our refuge in him. And he's willing to receive penitent people who return to him. So there's a powerful conclusion, I, I believe, that flows out of this, which is that we have clear biblical goals in disciplining our children and in um, showing them love and sympathy as we go forward. Today on the Skype line with us is Dr. Joel Beakey, president of Puritan Reform Seminary and pastor of Heritage Reformed Congregation in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And we've been talking about his book, Parenting by God's Promises, How to Raise Children in the Covenant of Grace. And the third part of your book, Dr. Beakey, where you go over practical steps for child rearing, you're a great student of the Puritans. And one part here talks about the help that we can get from our Puritan forebears. I wonder if you could share with our listeners some of the Puritan perspective and how that would apply to us today. Yes, I'd love to do that. Uh, First, let me say that the Puritans saw every child as a gift of God. They really believed that the Lord opens the womb. And the average Puritan family had eight or nine children. However, only 50% of their children lived to see adulthood. And so they knew sorrow as well, deep sorrow over the loss of children. But they believed that if the mother was strong enough, psychologically, spiritually, physically, and so on, to have another child after some months of after delivering a child, that the parents, husband and wife, should try again to have a child because they believed in being fruitful and filling the earth with the covenant seed. In fact, they often talked about having children for the sake of the commonwealth and the sake of the church, not just their own sake. Puritans would be aghast to hear parents sit down and say, well, I'd, I'd like three children. Well, I'd like five. Well, let's let's compensate. Let's have four. Um, that would be an abomination to them because the Lord opens the womb and we don't just have this kind of family planning. We wait on the Lord and we love children as a gift of God. And I mean, just imagine someone today saying, I think when you have a, a child, let's try to have a child, my dear, for the sake of the United States of America. I mean, we just don't think that way. We're so <laughs> selfish. But the Puritans thought that way. They thought corporately, both in the church and in the nation. Now, in terms of principles of child rearing, 
they're very, very practical. They, they do believe strongly in, in baptizing their children, but they believe equally strongly that their children need to be born again. And so they begin to educate them when they're very young, and they really taught them to read young, especially so that they could read the Bible. And so the New England Primer, which was first published in 1683, the first um, book published professionally in the United States, was, was filled with the theology. And when they taught the letter A, they taught it in Adam's fall, we sin it all. And they taught the letter Z, it was Zacchaeus, he did climb the tree, his Lord to see, and so on. But they also used family worship, as I mentioned, uh, the importance of that. I learned that really from the Puritans. They believe that you nurture the covenant ties to the father every single day, speaking to his children about the scriptures. They also believed in um, being very involved in their children's life decisions. And they actually would involve the whole family. So that, uh, say, for example, you have a 19-year-old who's considering uh, the potential of marriage in the future, actually, they would consult brothers and sisters. You know, you think that young lady over there, you know, sitting in that section of the church, you think she might be a really qualified person to be a wife. You know, they would talk about that openly with their kids or a job, uh, a life direction in terms of career. So there was just very very respectful dialogue between young people and their parents, uh, consulting one another on what would be best for this child to to grow up in the fear of God and then as a young person to, to make proper life decisions. Interestingly, they asked a number of, of questions that really relate to these things. For example, looking for a life mate, they would say things like this. Will the proposed spouse walk with our child in wisdom and genuine godliness in marriage? Does the proposed spouse have the biblical character of a marriage partner? Is this person properly motivated for entering into marriage? Is the proposed spouse fairly equal to our son or daughter in terms of social class and financial status? They said, if someone's from low class and the partners from high class, there's many adjustments to be made there, and maybe it's not a wise thing. And then finally, the last on the list is, is the proposed spouse attractive and attracted to our son or our daughter? So they believe that an initial spark of romantic interest in a proposed union should be there, but they viewed love as something that you develop mostly within marriage rather than falling madly in love before marriage, and then letting it cool off after marriage. And they taught their children much, much more than we do, that the calling in marriage is that the husband consciously, tangibly treats his wife the way Christ treats the church, and that the wife is to treat the husband the way the church treats Jesus Christ. Mm. I've observed some larger families in our church And one of the blessings I receive as we see these siblings getting along and caring for one another is just that. They, instead of quabbling and taking on and fighting, it's like they care for each other and watch out and make sure the little ones 
are safe, you know, because uh, there's a lot of kids and and yes. mom and dad work hard at uh, protecting them, but the older older children start to take on that role as well. Uh, what about handling sibling relationships? Any any uh, guidelines from the Puritans regarding that? Yes, well, we take for granted that kids are going to tease each other, uh, even even strongly tease each other to the point of damaging each other, each other's personality and, and the way they look at themselves. And um, we take it way too lightly. The Puritans would would allow some bantering back and forth and so on, but um, no mean or cruel teasing whatsoever. Uh, they would train their children to love their brothers and sisters, to respect them, to care for them. And um, they just won't tolerate these things in the home. And that begins with very early family worship training. And I can't stress family worship here enough because what happens, you see, is when the father is speaking about God's truth every single day to every single child, asking particular questions to each child, Every single child grows up communicating with his or her parents on a surprisingly adult level. And those children then are serious about their relationships from all this Bible training with others in the house and those outside of the home. So they have a consciousness about them that they are to treat their brother and their sister with Christ-like love. And when they don't do that, they feel very guilty. And that kind of guilt is is healthy in a family because we need to feel a responsibility to treat all of us, one another, parents, children, teenagers, with love, with Christ-like love. And that would be the, the Puritan emphasis. Amen. I'm sure you've had this happen to you where you blurt something out, maybe without thinking. I've had it too many times in my own life, or even write something, and you say, oh, I wish I could take that back. Can you talk to us a little bit about our tongue, and in particular, our children in the home as we train them, and um, how to help them tame their tongue? Yes, yes. Well, we're all sinners, of course, parents and children, and the tongue can no man uh, fully tame. And yet we are to work with the taming of the tongue. Uh, James James is very strong on the power of the tongue. And we need a lot of, a lot of parenting is, is teaching your children how to control their tongues. And probably the first thing to say there is that we need to be really, really strong on teaching our kids the power of the tongue, how we can destroy relationships with the tongue and our sinful nature so that we begin to work in our children with the blessing of the Holy Spirit, a sense of self-control. We don't say everything that comes into our minds. and We don't break other people's um, down, their personality down with judgmental or critical words. Certainly never are we allowed in this home to, to use profanity or vulgarity or obscenity with our tongues toward one another. Um, we don't allow outbursts of anger. Uh, we, contrary to what many would say today, uh, and if we as parents 
ever get angry with our children, visibly angry. We need to set the pattern there and go and apologize to them. And um, I've, I've had to do that a few times in, in rearing our children, where I actually sat down and just said, I, I'm really sorry. Let's go to prayer and ask God to forgive Daddy. I, I spoke too strong. Um, but I think once we do those major principles, every parent still has to really work on the whole area of nagging and murmuring and complaining and uh, seek to develop in our children a positive attitude. And one way we do that is by always speaking positively to our spouses. Our children need to see uh, just a lot of love between mom and dad and respect between mom and dad. And we really set the pattern for their relationships by our own relationship with our spouse. And then we also need to have primarily positive language to our children. If we find ourselves speaking negatively or saying, no, you can't do this, no, you can't do that, more than half the time, we've, we've got trouble on our hands because relationship then seems primarily negative. So we need to be cheerful with our tongues. We need to be God-glorifying with our tongues. We need to be positive with our tongues. And um, we need to use our tongues for the glory of God. So when you help your children, especially your teenagers, control their tongue, you see, you're already setting yourselves up as an example of edifying speech. You're nurturing contentment and gratitude in the home. And that helps that helps them uh, to control their own tongues when that positive spirit is there. Now, there are certain areas in controlling the tongue that just are moral infractions that are important to absolutely show zero toleration for. For example, if a child shows disrespect with his tongue to my wife as the mother of the home, I need to take that child aside and warn that child that they've spoke disrespectfully, that is utterly unacceptable to show to a mother such words of disrespect when that mother's doing so much for them, and then take that child to the mother to apologize. Hmm. Another area that's very important is they're not allowed to tell any lies. Uh, a lie is a serious moral infraction. We teach our children liars, unrepentant liars, will go to hell. This is a very, very solemn thing. Mm -hmm. And so we are to use our tongues to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and that, that positive approach must be emphasized over and over again. Well, it's very helpful. Today we've been talking with Dr. Joel R. Beakey. He's author of the book, Parenting by God's Promises, How to Raise Children in the Covenant of Grace. It's a wonderful book. I believe it's available on Amazon, perhaps elsewhere. Dr. Beakey, how would a listener get a hold of a copy of your book? Yes, the cheapest place to get it is at uh, heritagebooks.org. Very good, heritagebooks.org. Thank you so much, Dr. Joel Beakey, for spending time with our listeners today. We truly appreciate it. Thank you. God bless you. Dear listener, you can find this episode up on our website. Check us out. We're found at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. Please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. <laughs> 